0: what I was trying to write about was not about the history of justice found or the history of a debate about justice, but was rather discussions in East Asia of the dissatisfaction around the war crimes trials. And I found that to be a more productive avenue for research and writing. The question then became, even given all the war crimes trials that I had looked at before and all the war crimes trials around Asia and Southeast Asia that followed on the heels of World War II, there seemed to be, in the, particularly in the Sino-Japan relation, a deep dissatisfaction on both sides. And that I found puzzling.
1: Welcome to SCUS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode, I talk to Barak Kushna. Professor of East Asian History at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Farah was a fellow at SCAS during the academic year of 2019-2020. His work primarily focuses on 19th to 21st century Sino-Japanese relations and how modern Japan emerged from its historical interaction with the rest of East Asia. And this is the second episode within our theme Asia, Citizens and State Relations, and we will hear more about Japanese war crimes. We will also learn a little more about the history and politics behind the popular noodle dish, ramen. So welcome to Ska's Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself?
0: I think before I say anything, our listening audience is probably wondering how war crimes and ramen are connected, so perhaps we might have to answer that at the very end of this podcast. But uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about my research. I'm looking forward to uh, discussing things.
1: So very broadly, before we get into some of the details, uh, what is your research about?
0: I was thinking about that uh, while I was running this morning. I'm not sure that my research has one trajectory. If scholars say that their work has one trajectory, then they are forgetting their failures or the failures that they encountered on the way. And then they kind of recreate a seamless narrative that makes it seem as if there was a predestined trajectory. If I were to look back at the start of myself in an academic environment, I was initially interested in modern French history and questions Mm -hmm. at university level in modern French history led me to what I felt was an absence I was looking at wartime French film for my undergraduate dissertation, and I ended up putting quite a lot of time into it. And just as a comparative element, in 1989, 1990, as I was finishing, I got interested in what about the wartime cinema of other wartime countries? There was a lot on Nazi cinema. There was a lot on Italian, this and that. There was nothing on East Asian cinema. And in my deep ignorance of East Asia, I thought, well wouldn't it be interesting to learn Japanese and then find out what the Japanese wartime cinema was? This was in 1990, and now we're in 2021, so you can imagine how long that journey took. I had no idea how difficult Japanese was. I had no background in it. It took actually many years to get started, but it kind of started with a question or an absence, which was, what happened to Japanese entertainment during the war? And it was a question that at that time no one could really answer. And from that, I got interested in... East Asia. And then I ended up going to East Asia, living there for a while back and forth and studying. And eventually, I met somebody who was writing a book on Japanese wartime film. And I realized I couldn't actually choose that topic. But that led me to other topics, some successful, others not. And as I moved through graduate school, eventually, after having taught here and there, and and working for the government, I think eventually about maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I started to think about Japan in different ways. That modern Japanese history, we shouldn't just conceive of as something that happens internally to the geography of Japan. That due to Japan's modernization efforts after the Meiji Restoration, but due to its deep interaction, often aggressive, but not always in the rest of East Asia and Southeast Asia, that we needed to look at how Japan developed in interaction in its relations with others to understand uh, how it arrived at where it is today. So in a long-term trajectory, I would say I've I've come from looking at Japan somewhat in isolation as a Japanologist to looking at Japan within East Asia and East Asia's relation to Japan. And that's kind of, I think, where I am
1: as a historian today. Yeah. And you already answered A little bit my next question, how you got interested in this area, but is there anything to add there? Why do you find these topics so fascinating?
0: You know, I was listening back to uh, Professor Michael Pewitt's podcast, uh, the first one in the series, and his interest starts with also an absence when he was younger in high school. I'm obviously not nearly as adept in all the languages and history as Professor Pewitt is, but in some ways, I would think, uh, for me, it began maybe when I was 10 when my family took a sabbatical to Israel, and I was forced in the fifth grade to go to a school where I didn't speak the language at all. And by the end of one year, I remember very clearly on the last day of school, I understood absolutely everything. And then we we went home back to America the next day. And I was despondent, having spent so long and so much effort making friends and figuring out the language, but also learning how to think in another language. We tend to grow up very monolingual lately in the last few decades in America and learning how to think in another language, being exposed to very different cultures that held different values was challenging but also really exciting. And as I moved through high school and went into university, I'm not sure that that absence or that need to learn about the rest of the world that I wasn't being exposed to was always fulfilled. And after I graduated university and taught high school for a few years, you could get a job teaching English in East Asia and that was a real important portal for many of us to get out to East Asia it's far plane tickets were expensive there was no internet you couldn't just write to people necessarily and have them get back to you and for many of us that was a way to get out to East Asia for the first time and kind of explore and see the world we didn't know anything about and that was tough. It's not easy, particularly in the early 1990s with very limited Japanese that I had from a summer course. And I was up in the north of Japan. And I think that challenge, people you meet, I I met a very important uh, head Buddhist priest of a local temple who kind of took me under his wing. And the people you meet on that journey, and of course, your failures and, and where you get stymied and the difficulty of the language starting over, that also becomes very important in feeding the passion to learn more about a part of the world that you were never taught about and that you begin to have a deeper interest in because you realize the depth of your own ignorance. And as you can talk to more people and you can expand on what you don't know and read books that you would never be exposed to otherwise because they're written in Japanese or Chinese, then that kind of feeds more of a desire to keep pushing forward. And I think that's perhaps also part of that trajectory. Keeping in mind, of course, there are many stumbling blocks along the way, and it's not a seamless trajectory upward at all.
1: I read somewhere that you went to Japanese elementary school as a grown-up.
0: I did. This was one of those failures. I had been hired by this small fishing village in the northeast of Japan to be an assistant language teacher for English. But they fundamentally didn't know what to do with me. And after about five months, I wasn't spending any time in the classroom. So I thought, well, this is a waste of my time. I really want to learn Japanese. There were no textbooks for purchase up in this area. One had to go all the way down to Tokyo, which was kind of about a seven-hour journey on a bus and then a high-speed train. So not easy at all. And one of the ways to learn Japanese was to hang out with elementary school students, who looked on me or who would look on any foreigner as kind of a large toy or plaything or a panda bear. In six months, I did a year of each grade. So I did January, I did first grade. February, I did second grade, moved up. We ate lunch together. And I was always the first chosen for the dodgeball games. So I like to think my career in in, uh, Japanese and East Asian history was launched due to my ability. Well, of course, I was 25 years old and I was playing with eight-year-olds. So it stands to reason I was good. But uh, it's nice to be chosen first, even for, uh, for kids' games.
1: Sounds like quite an experience you've had in Japan. But then you spent a year here at SCAS in Uppsala. What did you study here during your stay?
0: While at SCAS, the goal was to read deeply and widely in secondary and primary literature what I hadn't had time to acquire while teaching full-time. So the goal at SCAS is you are free from all obligations with the exception of the fantastic lunches. You need to run and go to the gym, otherwise you will expand in size as well at SCAS. Although somehow, miraculously, the staff doesn't expand in size, but I think the rest of us in terms of academics um, do. The goal at guess was to look at kind of the follow-up book to what I had written that came out in 2016, which was Men to Devils, Devils to Men, a look at how the Chinese processed Japanese war crimes and what the Japanese response was to that. And I wasn't quite satisfied with where I got to in that book. I think part of the issue when you write or you do research in East Asian historical topics, but you write about it for a Western audience is that you need to provide, I mean, rightly so, you need to provide a lot of background so that the reading audience can start at the same place that you are in terms of knowledge. It's very different if you were, of course, writing for an East Asian audience who has a much different understanding of their own national and international history. And so because I felt that I needed to provide a lot more background not just for the reading audience, but really to place myself and to understand the context, I wasn't quite satisfied with Men to Devils. And so the follow-up book that I wanted to work on at SCAS was looking at what I thought at the time was going to be a history of justice in East Asia and looking at how the war crimes trials created an understanding or at least created a space where the various nations in East Asia would talk about what justice was and their pursuit of it in the war crimes trials. I think, importantly, after spending the first few months at SCAS thinking and then talking with other people and listening to other people's talks, that I came to realize that what I was trying to write about was not about the history of justice found or the history of a debate about justice but was rather discussions in East Asia of the dissatisfaction around the war crimes trials. And I found that to be a more productive avenue for research and writing. The question then became, even given all the war crimes trials that I had looked at before, and all the war crimes trials around East Asia and Southeast Asia that followed on the heels of World War II, there seemed to be in the, particularly in the Sino-Japan relation, a deep dissatisfaction on both sides. And that I found puzzling. And so that became the question then that I worked on at SCAS, that I finished the manuscript recently, and I'm now shopping it around. I wish I could say, you know, I know where it's coming out. Sadly, the pandemic has slowed down the publishing world a bit. So maybe we'll be able to talk about that more in the next podcast.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the war crimes in Asia, Japan. What kind of war crimes are we talking about? Can you give us some examples?
0: There are three classifications of war crimes in East Asia, a slight differentiation from what we find in the West. And there's Class A, Class B, and Class C. Class A war crimes are crimes against peace. And that would have been the charge of aggressive warfare or leading a nation into war. These were individuals who didn't necessarily dirty their hands with murder, rape, pillaging at the ground or local level. But They would have been elites who crafted policy or who, who made decisions. And initially, 28 of those individuals, both military and civilian, were brought to trial at the Tokyo War Crimes Trial. And that's considered the Class A trial. And it's sort of the sister trial to the Nuremberg trial of Nazi leaders, almost at the, at the same time. It's slightly different, and the parameters are not completely equal, but one could kind of imagine these two trials happening simultaneously. And in a sense, that's why they always get discussed comparatively in history, and also because Japan was an Axis partner of Nazi Germany at the time. But what starts to differentiate war crimes trials in East Asia from what happens in Europe is then all the other war crimes trials that take place outside of Tokyo, run by a whole host of nations, the United States, United Kingdom, the Netherlands, France, Australia, all around East Asia, but also Southeast Asia. And this would include China. And these are about 5,700 men in about 50 different venues from about 1945 to, if we include the Chinese Communist Party trials, 1946. So they last for almost a decade after the war is over, over a very large area, and I was specifically looking at why were there so many trials over this large geographic span? What was motivating various countries to believe that they needed to pursue war crimes trials at a time when they were trying to recolonize their colonies that they had lost to Japan, such as with the Dutch in. Indonesia, or with the French in Indochina, or other places. And that's kind of one of the larger questions I've been looking at for the last, I guess, decade or so. And within that, I'm focusing particularly on China, because China was not highly regarded legally by the Allies. It was necessary to ally with China in order to have a solid front against the Japanese onslaught during World War II, but no one was really holding their breath for the Chinese to be able to bring war crimes trials to fruition, to implement them, to have a satisfactory set of verdicts. And then the question kind of becomes, well, why did the Chinese themselves think it was necessary? They were already struggling with a budding civil war. Extraterritoriality had really only just been kind of dissolved in 1943. And you start to realize that there's a lot more to war crimes trials than merely the pursuit of justice, that there's a whole political and international public opinion set of drivers and forces below the surface that are pushing countries both in competition with each other to kind of get the highest ranking Japanese individual they can to be placed in a war crimes trial in their country so they can show to their domestic audience, look, we are bringing truth to power, we are bringing justice, we are implementing justice against uh, a Japanese atrocity, and there's all sorts of trading going on behind the scenes. So that's kind of what I was looking at over the last few years.
1: Yes. And what have you found? Can you give us some examples?
0: I'll give you some specific examples from the Sino-Japan relationship, because that's mainly what I've been looking at. So I guess the first example might be might tie into why does this matter still today? And that would take us to a case called the Hundred Man Killing Contest. As the Japanese imperial military is moving toward Nanjing, there's a series of atrocities. And of course, then you end up with the massacre of Nanjing. But on the way, there is a famous story propagated in a wartime Japanese newspaper of two Japanese officers who are holding a competition to use their swords to lop off the heads of as many Chinese peasants as they can on the way to Nanjing. It's a rather gruesome story, and the newspaper touts that it's each officer was trying to see who could be first to cut off 100 heads. Now, of course, this was widely propagated at the time in the Japanese newspaper, and it becomes a trial in post-war China, a trial run by the KMT, because the KMT runs its own trials of Japanese atrocities from 1946 to 1949. And then a number of years later, The Chinese Communist Party runs its own trials of separate individuals in 1956. So we already can sense that there's a competition going on between both ruling Chinese parties to demonstrate either who's more benevolent, who can implement justice better, or who can bring justice to the Chinese people for Japanese atrocities. But the important issue of the 100 man killing contest is that the two officers are found guilty by the Chinese Nationalist Court and they're executed. In all probability, this event of two Japanese officers trying to have a competition with their swords to cut off Chinese heads probably didn't happen in the way it was described in the Japanese newspaper. Japanese newspapers were propagandistic. They wanted to portray a certain angle of the Japanese imperial army. Does this mean, or am I then therefore in denial of the atrocities of the Japanese imperial military? No. There's no doubt that there were atrocities, and these two individuals in question probably also committed atrocities. They just probably didn't do it in the way that the newspaper said, and it might not have been the same number of individuals for which they were found guilty and then executed. But the problem then becomes years later, as this trial is sanctified legally in a Chinese court, and because the Chinese are allies at the time of the West, this gets remembered and this is then recalled and it's placed in Chinese textbooks, that it becomes, in a sense, the archetypal, legally sanctified verdict about Japanese wartime history that is then used and replayed in contemporary Chinese politics to the great regret of the Japanese conservatives or the Japanese right wing, who push against this verdict and say, how is this possible? This was impossible. This sort of thing didn't happen. Now, of course, the Japanese right wing and the conservatives are blanketly denying that this episode ever took place, They're not really considering that maybe it took place in a different sort of venue or with a smaller number of people. They just blankly want to refuse it completely. But when you have a trial like that, that has obvious legal holes in it at the time in 1946 when it occurs, then how does that have an impact later on on historical memory and the sanctification of a particular historical episode in a legal verdict that then gets recalled either as negative propaganda in the Japanese case, or as positive state propaganda in the Chinese case. So that's one kind of issue that I've been looking at. And one area, I think, where we can understand why these war crimes trials retain a certain value in today's international relations paradigm, because they have a political influence, depending on how they're used by both sides. I think another Episode I found very intriguing was the horse trading literally behind the scenes between various governments for gaining access to individuals they considered to be of the highest value as war criminals so that they could put that person on trial. So one, for example, would be Matsui Iwane, who is the general at the time, the Japanese military general in the Nanjing theater of war, who is put on trial as an A-class war criminal by the Americans. And the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Chinese Nationalist Government is constantly writing to the Americans saying, give him to us. He should be put on trial by the Chinese because the Nanjing Massacre was the site of a Chinese atrocity. So they're not incorrect. But Matsui had already really kind of retired from the military and was in Japan at the time of the end of the war, right? The Nanjing Massacre happens at the end of 1937, fundamentally, and the war ends in 1945. Matsui is older and he's in American custody. And the Americans want him at the Tokyo trial because it puts the Tokyo trial, therefore, in a very different light because it's the leadership they're putting on trial. And so they consistently say, no, Matsui, he has dysentery. He's not feeling well. We couldn't possibly ship him to China. And you can read kind of the traffic, the diplomatic and military traffic back and forth. One of the reasons that the Chinese end up with Sao as one of the high-ranking Japanese officers to be pretty much kind of arrested in Japan and then extradited to China is because the Americans don't want him. And he's arrestable in Japan, and he's findable. And the Chinese are happy that they he will be extradited to China. And this happens not just between China and America and Japan, where America runs the occupation, but the French behind the scenes and the British with the Chinese and vice versa. Um, there's a, a constant movement and somewhat trading of Japanese individuals, depending on who is able to gain the, the upper hand. And that's why that individual ends up in a certain courtroom at a certain time in a certain country. Is that just? Yes, oftentimes it was. Was proper legal procedure always followed? Not necessarily. And I think that's one of the issues in looking at war crimes trials, particularly in East Asia, that we have to struggle with. We are just talking about this in class the other day, that as human beings, we're able to have two opposing thoughts at the same time. And I think the two opposing thoughts we're able to have are, on one hand, these war crimes trials in East Asia were an attempt, a very novel and new attempt by governments to stem the recurrence of violence following the end of the war. It didn't necessarily work. There were many civil wars in a lot of the countries where the Japanese were defeated, but it is an attempt to put an end to further cycles of retribution, vengeance, or violence to use law as a way to kind of cauterize the wounds that war had caused. And I think that's a very laudable goal, and we need to think about that and uphold that goal. At the same time, we have to be careful not to glorify the trials too much, sanctify everything they did in a way that does not allow us to investigate the absence of justice, the warts, the problems below the surface. And I think perhaps in some ways, that's maybe what I'm looking at now. How do we take that balance? Can we investigate problems within the war crimes trials and within the implementation of justice in various areas in Northeast and Southeast Asia, while at the same time applauding the efforts that using trials was attempting to kind of push forward. And I'm not sure we're at that point of the discussion yet. In some ways, we're kind of on the Chinese side. It's sanctifying and glorifying the trials a bit too much, I would say, particularly at the governmental Communist Party level. And on the Japanese side, kind of a mixed bag. Certainly, Japanese academics of all stripes are digging into, but conservative government officials tend to kind of take a lopsided view of that history. I think it was a rather long-winded explanation. I do have one more example. Should I throw one more example in there? Yes, please. So the third example, which is perhaps one of the more original findings, is something called the white group. And this goes back to that initial question you asked me, I think, about trajectory. And I think our trajectory is often almost like a pinball machine in that what we are that kind of ball in the pinball machine and, and whatever sort of individuals we meet along the way of our journey or questions we get asked at a talk we give, that feedback also then pushes us perhaps in a different direction. So I've been very lucky here at Cambridge to have some uh, very good colleagues who have pushed me and asked me many questions when we have discussions about research. But when I was at uh, Bristol University a number of years ago, I was giving an initial talk on my initial findings of the war crimes trials. And at the very end of the talk, a Taiwanese scholar raised his hand and said, what about the white group? I had never heard of the white group. So I responded, thank you very much for your question. I know absolutely nothing about the white group. But of course, that question then lingered in my mind and suggested to me, my Barack, you should really go out and find what the white group is, because obviously, if this Taiwanese scholar knows what it's about, you should too. And so I did. And luckily, at that moment, or a few years after, when I was in Tokyo Next at the Yasukuni Shrine Archives, there had recently been a very large deposit of the white group papers, and that was very serendipitous. It turns out that the white group were a collection of former Japanese imperial officers, some of whom had been war criminals, not all, who were Illegally hired, at least until the occupation of Japan in 1952 was over, who were illegally hired by the Chinese nationalists to retrain or to train in spiritual military education, but also in tactical military education, the Chinese nationalist army with the goal of retaking the mainland. Because, of course, in 1949, the KMT gets defeated by the Chinese Communist Party and flees to Taiwan. And so Chiang Kai-shek and his fellow officers felt what they needed was a different approach. They had kept losing. Now, this is a fascinating moment in kind of Japanese history, but also just in military history, because it gets us to rethink what defeat meant for Japan following the end of the war. So traditionally, I think, we tend to look at East Asian history from a very American-centric or Western-centric point of view. And the American-centric point of view of World War II is that Japan is defeated. Japan loses, and it acknowledges its defeat. There's a very famous book by John Dower, Pulitzer Prize-winning author called Embracing Defeat. I would argue that that only looks at what happens in the Pacific Islands, in the Pacific Ocean theater, where very clearly Japan succumbs to the American military juggernaut. But it doesn't explain the rest of the Japanese empire. It doesn't explain Taiwan. doesn't explain Korea. And it certainly doesn't explain China in those theaters, Japan was really not losing at all. Now, Japan does surrender, but that doesn't mean that they have the idea of defeat, nor does it mean that the Japanese who are living at the periphery of the empire also have the idea of defeat. And I think we can see that idea even more when we look at this white group phenomenon, that here is Chiang Kai-shek. Supposedly, the Chinese nationalists are a victorious member of the Allies. They defeated the Japanese, and yet they are employing the defeated Japanese to come to Taiwan to teach them military strategy and military spiritual education so that the KMT can retake the mainland. In my opinion, that should force us to change our understanding of how we see defeat at the end of World War II, because clearly the Chinese nationalists saw something else in the Japanese, not merely a vanquished, the vanquished nation but an imperial military that still had certain validity or certain use for them, which of course was very different from the Americans. And so the white group is this real interesting phenomenon because it also ties into war crimes trials. And the reason is because the individual who led the white group was the last Japanese general to lead the Japanese forces in China, General Okumura Yasuji. He is... The commander in charge of the surrender of Japanese troops until January of 1949 in China. He was retained by the Chinese because they wanted to maintain order and control among the Japanese troops so that they would depart peacefully and not create disturbances. And they also, of course, help out with state security for the KMT where there aren't enough police or where things are a bit unstable. There had been tremendous public pressure to bring General Okumura Yasuji to trial. And finally, in January of 1949, he is brought to trial, but he's declared innocent. He is quickly whisked back to Japan, where, through various intermediaries, Chiang Kai-shek gets in touch with him and says, "Please send your best men to Taiwan to help retrain us." The story behind the scenes, of course, is that it's a tit for tat. That Chiang Kai-shek knows that if he manages to orchestrate a no, not guilty verdict for Okamura, that Okamura will go back to Japan and they can retain a relationship. And that relationship is, of course, that both post-war Japan and the KMT are anti-communist. So even though they had been enemies, in a sense, during the war, they share a new commonality post-war, which is our common new enemy is the Chinese Communist Party.
1: This is really complicated.
0: That's why it's hard to write the short version of this. There's, There's no short book.
1: No, I understand. And there's a lot of interrelations, of course, and reconstructions of of what has happened. But what is the situation now? I mean, how do people look on these war crimes and how are they being used um, politically and also otherwise?
0: Yeah, that's one of the fascinating issues that really until 2012 or so, Fundamentally, the Tokyo trial was not remembered, was not recalled all that much in China. China was focusing on other things. When I was in China initially for this research in 2008, my host very kindly said, would you like to give a talk on the topic? And I thought it was good. I was very nervous. It was the first talk I ever gave in Chinese. And Nanjing is very hot in the summertime. And I was sweating. Bullets under my my shirt, and for some reason they turned off the air conditioner in the room in the middle of my talk, so I think I was kind of sitting in a puddle of my own perspiration by that point about forty or so graduate students were listening to the talk. I will eventually get to your question and I asked the group there who knows what the name of the Chinese judge to the Tokyo trial war crimes trial was and not one person could name the Chinese judge and that really struck me that this was in Nanjing. You know, Nanjing is the site of the Nanjing Massacre. Nanjing has a whole Nanjing Massacre museum. It has uh, volumes of books devoted to it, but no one could tell me the name of the Chinese judge or the name of the Chinese prosecutor that was sent to the Tokyo war crimes trial. I think many people had kind of forgotten that China played a role in the Tokyo war crimes trial, that it was really just a Western or an American and Australian led trial, even though the judges of 11 countries were on the dais. So what struck me in 2008 is that this wasn't really being talked about in China at the time. Now, more than a decade later, I mean, there's statues to Judge Mei Wu Rao. There are statues to Zhang Zhejun, who is the prosecutor. There are movies. There was TV shows. There's all sorts of media. There's books galore. There's a new center for the study of the Tokyo trial at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. So there's been a real explosion of interest in the topic. and Part of the reason for this, I think, is that this goes back to our discussion point at the beginning, this kind of sanctification in some ways, that the CCP in general, but in some ways Chinese society, is now seeing an emergence of knowing about the Tokyo war crimes trial as a way to push Japan to, or Japanese public, to think more about what happened during the war. That here is the Tokyo trial, here are all these other trials in China about which now books are being written and and coming out. That the Japanese need to recall this. These verdicts need to be remembered. And of course, along with this push in China has come websites devoted to this now. Confessions of the Japanese are being put up, and then they're also being released in various volumes. And this is all being done in the last 10 years. So there's a real concerted push to make this story of the war crimes trials, which had been ignored or forgotten, for a variety of reasons that if we have time we can get into, pushed to the sidelines. Now, the opposite, in a sense, is kind of happening in Japan, that Japan was knee-deep in the Tokyo war crimes trials and other war crimes trials for quite a long time. By the time we get to the 1990s and the 21st century in Japan, the public opinion is that they've been talked about. There's a knowledge that they existed, and it's not new. The Japanese have obviously found other topics to talk about. And so there is a a real discord between the rise or the rebirth of this as an important historical topic that should be re-remembered or recalled in China, and somewhat perhaps of a fatigue on the Japanese side. Not a fatigue because people don't want to talk about it, there's still scholars working on it, but a fatigue in the sense that we've seen this before. This is not necessarily new, and we know this. And that is also part of the problem, in that this mismatch of the memory of the trials, the force of the resurgence in China, and in some ways the pushback, because it's already been digested in Japan, I think, is one issue. The other issue that this ties into is, of course, this is being remembered in China in a particular way. And it's not always incorrect. I did a, a TV documentary in China that came out last year and, and won an award, and I think we did a, a decent job. You have to be careful with Chinese media. It is censored. can't necessarily do everything you want, but we had some very interesting discussions. It was a really good team from the Shanghai Media Group that worked on it. One of the issues that sort of comes up in how this these trials are have become, in a sense, weaponized or like a pendulum bounce back and forth as a form of historical memory with which to kind of batter the opponent or, let us say, antagonize the opponent, is that the trials have become remembered a certain way in China to the exclusion of other history. So what we see now on some sides in Japan is a push toward the idea that if the Chinese are going to constantly harp on the Tokyo War Crimes trials or the other trials, then the Japanese are going to say, well, what about China that doesn't remember its own history? And of course, its own history would be the Cultural Revolution, which of course was remembered, but now it's being sort of pushed against, but more importantly, Tiananmen Square. One Chinese scholar has called China, the Republic of Amnesia. Some conservative Japanese scholars are saying, well, If China can't be true to its own history and therefore acknowledge the warts and whatnot below the scenes, then how could China complain about Japan? And that's, in some ways, I think, a standoff of where we are. I'm not sure that's a productive line of reasoning. It's very similar to the Japanese war crimes defense, which was well, if the Americans don't bring to trial the pilots that dropped the atomic bombs for war crimes, why should we be pursued for war crimes? It's an absurd defense because. When you're charged with murder as an individual, your defense cannot be, well, there are other people in society murdering, therefore I cannot be charged. But it's a satisfying defense for some, at least in the prima facie case. But I I think that's sort of a problem where we are now politically with war crimes trials that demonstrate the imbalance of how they're viewed unfairly in a sense. And there's this idea in Japan of masochistic history now, that the Verdict of the Tokyo War Crimes Trial and the other war crimes trials paint a negative picture of Japan historically and because that negative picture of Japan historically gets recalled, retrenched and remembered so often in the rest of East Asia that many conservative Japanese feel it's creating a negative self-image of Japanese history within Japan in younger generations and they want to push against that. And in a sense, that's how we can also see the push against the usage of the history of war crimes trials or why entrenching an historical episode in a legal verdict can also lead to feelings of injustice and not necessarily always lead to feelings or a movement toward reconciliation.
1: Is that also the reason or one of the reasons why people forget about these things, why it's a forgotten topic? Or are there other ingredients to that? Because to me, it sounds so fascinating that you can just forget about the war crimes. But then I'm from Germany, so...
0: Yes. I mean, I think it's important to remember that Japan and Germany were very different. I think we do a disservice when we immediately correlate Japan and Germany. Yes, they were Axis partners, but Japan was never genocidal. Japan does not have a Nazi policy at all. It is aggressive. massive number of atrocities are committed, particularly against Chinese and overseas Chinese. There is forced labor There is the comfort women problem. There there are massive difficulties and atrocities and war crimes committed within the Japanese empire. But at the base level, it was never the Nazi program. In some ways, I think it's perhaps more akin to the amnesia we see in France. If we think of France's relation with Indochina, that became almost a a nine-year civil war after the Japanese left. The French are trying to recolonize Indochina, even though they've lost it. Or Algeria. Right, where General Charles de Gaulle had to declare that no French soldiers could be pursued for war crimes. And really, until recently, Algeria, the War of Independence, as it's termed on the Algerian side, or the incident, the Algerian incident, as it's termed, was termed on the French side, was never seen as a war. Right, It was an incident. And that's very similar to how the Japanese declared their incidents all the way from the early 1930s until finally they declared war against the West and in China in 1941. I think Germany is always the outlier and should be seen as the outlier. And once German history is seen more as the outlier and we, we reconcile imperial history of, let's say, the Dutch, the British, the French with Japan and the commonality of the difficulty of remembering how empire was implemented among those countries, I think we see a lot more common denominators where there's much more fruitful pathways for investigation than with Germany. But the issue of forgetting is important on the Chinese side. And this is, I think, where my research begins to diverge greatly from Chinese mainland research about the war crimes trials, because I'm interested in in that amnesia when that begins. And a lot of it begins with the various purges that the CCP kicks up in the early 1950s against those who had been seen as collaborators or those who had been seen as Chinese nationalists. And of course, that would be a tremendous amount of the legal staff who would pursue justice against the Japanese. So many of them are purged. We also see, fascinatingly, a purge after the 1956 trial. So after the communist trials in 1956, there's another purge of a lot of the Chinese judges, the communist judges, who ran the trials of the Japanese who were brought to trial by the communists. So there's layers of purges of legal staff who had attempted or tried to follow the law at the time within China and their stories get kind of pushed under the carpet because it becomes difficult to talk about justice pursued against the Japanese when you've then purged and kind of pushed the story of those who pursued that justice out of the mainstream narrative. They start to come back in the 1980s when the Chinese government then begins to try to rehabilitate all of these individuals that had been purged or who had been removed from the party. But that's a fairly long process. And then it becomes a difficult story. What I think also is very interesting, if we look at the history, and I've been working on this a bit more now, is that it's not always the pursuit of justice against the Japanese that is the most important element of the story. If we Look at the long durée of the pursuit of war crimes trials the more important story perhaps really up until the 21st century was the story of the KMT war criminals. So after 1949 when the KMT is defeated and flees to Taiwan obviously there's huge numbers of individuals military officials but government officials legal scholars who are left in China. Some of them are rounded up, particularly the high-level ones. They're incarcerated. Eventually, they are housed in the same prison as the Japanese war criminals. The KMT are labeled war criminals in the same way that the Japanese are. The Chinese Communist Party sees no difference between them. But the major difference is, internationally, the Chinese Communist Party had trials of the Japanese, so they investigated them for years. They had trials. Those found guilty were kept in prison until... The early 1960s, but about 960 were let go and repatriated back to Japan, kind of a benevolent release. That's not the case with the KMT war criminals. The first set of KMT war criminals are released in 1959, but none are fundamentally investigated for actual war crimes as the Japanese were. We don't have the records of that, and none were actually put on any public trial. And the last KMT war criminals are not released until 1975. So The story that's being told now in the 21st century of the centrality of the pursuit of war crimes against Japan is a kind of a reorientation of what that trial was. But the story at the time was also equally the pursuit of incarceration against KMT war criminals that's also in a sense been forgotten, but that was seemingly much more important to the Chinese Communist Party because they kept them incarcerated until 1975 almost kind of 13 years or so after the Japanese had already been released. And I think, again, that kind of divergence of how the story is remembered now to what the more complex and different history was then is also important to be retold.
1: So you have also written a book about uh, Raman, Slurp?
0: <laughs> Everyone likes the title. No one says the title and doesn't giggle afterwards.
1: Yeah, but it's wonderful. You can see the noodles slurping.
0: Slurping the noodles. Well, the, um, the motivation behind that book was I had done the first book on wartime propaganda. I'd left academia for a while. I was in government, and I wanted to do what I thought would be a lighter topic, so not related to war. But I was interested in the Sino-Japan relationship from a cultural point. And I was very interested in how you have this meaty noodle soup that is extremely popular in Japan, that I, of course, hadn't had growing up at all. The first time I had it was when I went to Japan in 1992, how you could have this dish that was seemingly not Japanese at all. In my mind, Japanese food was raw fish, tentacly things, slimy, things that swam or they floated on the sea. ramen was just this kind of miracle of a dish appearing out of nowhere. It was something I like. I mean, I must admit, when I first went to Japan, I didn't like Japanese food. I didn't have an experience of raw fish, and it didn't agree with me. And one night, as I write about in the book, a colleague on a very rare occasion invited me out after a drunken evening. And we ended up going into this shop in the middle of town, which I didn't know existed. And I got a hot steaming bowl of delicious noodles in a broth, and I was transfixed. I thought, this is fantastic. What have I been missing? And then I began to think to myself, what is this? Because this is not like anything I've been forced to eat in this fishing village for months now. And that was kind of the origin of, of my thinking. And it wasn't until a few years later where I was able to start kind of digging in and looking at how the Chinese, in their interaction with Japanese In the 1860s and the 1870s and the 1880s, were in some ways much more important than the Westerners who were being employed to come to Japan to teach modernization. There's this image that the Meiji Restoration, the modern era of Japan after 1868, is built on the backs of foreigners who are paid fairly large salaries to come to Japan to teach so that the Japanese can learn science, technology, military methods, and modernize. That is one explanation of what's going on, but it doesn't explain ramen. It doesn't explain changes in how the Japanese ate and how that was influenced by the Chinese and back and forth. And then when you think about the 20th and the 21st century, the ramen goes back to the rest of East Asia. Now you see it everywhere. So again, this, this interaction. And that really kind of started pushing me on a journey. I was only initially going to do it as looking at the 20th century. And then for me, in order to answer, well, why did this become a soup and a noodle dish developed in Chinese restaurants in Japan in the early 20th century, I felt I had to go back to the Meiji period, which is before. And then I had to ask, well, what were Japanese eating before the Meiji period that made the Meiji period so different? So then I had to figure out what they were eating in the Tokugawa period beforehand. And then I figured, well, if I'm already back in the Tokugawa period, which is about 1600 to 1868, I thought, well, we should see medievally what's going on because that would also have an influence which takes you really all the way back to kind of the ninth and eighth century, when initial food technology, so tea drinking, ways of grinding various cereals or wheats to make noodles, the technology is brought over by Japanese Buddhist priests who go to China, who study and then come back. And what I realized, I think, at the end of that book, the journey of the slurping is a long journey, that you can't just understand modernity in the 19th and 20th century, that all of this food technology and the transfer of ideas about what do nations or what do various ethnicities eat is always changing. And I think I was pushing in that book against several ideas. One idea that I came up with, which was, of course, the Japanese have not always been a nation that eats like they do today. And in fact, no nation is a nation that eats like they do today. And that really kind of comes out in the research. And that Each region is always an interaction with with itself, but also with others around it. And for me, for Japanese history, what you begin to realize, again, trying to remove America from the equation, is that it's Japan's relation with China and Korea through Western Japan, through Kyushu, which is one of the southern islands, because Japan kind of sits almost an east-west horizontal latitude. That's where Japanese culture kind of comes from. And then it kind of comes up and around north in Japan. And it's not just about what foreigners are bringing to Meiji Japan, both in Nagasaki, but more really in kind of the Tokyo area, uh, Yokohama and whatnot, that there's much larger story to how Japan modernizes and a much longer durée of how Japan comes to conceive of itself as eating certain forms of food and what that means. Now, it also was a failure. This was a book that no one wanted to publish. I think I went to 20 publishers before Brill took it on. Was that because it wasn't popular at the time when I started looking for a publisher? No one was really interested. No one really knew what ramen was at the time when I started to look for a publisher until ramen became popular. And then everyone wanted to know my thoughts on why was ramen becoming popular in America and in Europe? And then it was translated into Chinese on the mainland, Chinese in Taiwan, and then Japanese. Sadly, there's no Korean translation. There's much more interest of the book in East Asia because they already knew about ramen. But the interest in the West has changed because now ramen is a popular topic. And if you go to a lot of big cities, there's a ramen shop or there's an udon shop, whereas 20 years ago, there wasn't. In some ways, if you're ahead of the curve in writing a book on ramen or slurp, you have to wait sometimes for others to, to catch up. And you know, now people are like, oh, please write the next version. So we'll see what happens.
1: But for me as a science communicator, I mean, this is like a wonderful idea to, to go back in history or back and forth and explain something through food.
0: As I say in the book, I mean, one of the fun things about ramen research is you, it's research you can eat. I mean, it was fun to do, but it, it wasn't taken seriously when I first did it. Food history was just kind of starting out. There were There's some well-known several historians of Chinese and Japanese food history. But ramen, I think because it was a popular culture topic, people felt it should be written in a certain way. And that might have been one of the issues with the book. I didn't want to make it all funny. I mean, it does have funny parts because it ties in with a lot of popular culture, but it's a serious look at food history. And I think that was part of the, the issue with publishers is because it was seen only as a modern topic. They couldn't understand why I was going so far back in time. No, no, you should just start in the 19th century or just start in 1940. And I didn't want to do that. And luckily, you eventually can find a publisher that will help you with your own vision of what it should be.
1: But let's return then from the ramen shop to discuss what was your experience of the environment here at the Collegium, the multi- and interdisciplinary environment?
0: It's rather extraordinary. I mean, you don't often get a chance as a mid-career scholar to suddenly have your entire day free, with the exception of the fantastic lunch, to pause in your own office and think and write, and then interact with others, and then in, in the afternoon, Here and there, also listen to lectures on topics you normally have no connection with and wouldn't necessarily think of going to. And that can offer a lot of stimulus, I think, particularly if you're an Asianist. Historically, there haven't been many at SCAS. Obviously, Professor Pewitt is well connected there, but I think I might have been one of the other few ones uh, to come in for the year. And so it puts us in contact with a range of highly intellectual, talented people who are deep in their field, and you engage with them, you listen, you talk. And if you're the kind of scholar that thrives on that sort of dialogue and can learn from that, and this includes scientists and climatologists, historical climatologists, several who were there when I was, then that's rather extraordinary. And it's a real rare opportunity in life to be challenged by what they're saying, to listen to it, to have it open up new ideas and fields or learn about books or places in the world you would have never realized existed. That's a lot of fun. It's one thing to kind of troll YouTube, of course, and find things and listen to it. It's another thing to be there live in person, hearing the talk, asking questions, chatting about it, and then seeing that person the next day and kind of continuing the conversation. It's a wonderful environment because of the staff, because of the principal who leads it, the setting. And that makes it all the more important. And it's a gift. If you're lucky enough to be chosen by the committee to be able to go to SCAS, and and unfortunately, my SCAS time was cut short because of the pandemic. So a lot of us ended up repatriating to different countries where we have partners or whatnot. Otherwise, we would just be alone completely for six months at SCAS. But in the six months before the pandemic, you realize what a treasure it is as an institution in Uppsala, but also as a place where highly intellectuals can gather and exchange ideas without fear that it's popular or not popular. And I don't think that that many places exist kind of outside of the popularity zone. I mean, people were doing everything, specialists in Soviet literature, brain scientists who's looking at placebos, environmental historians medieval Germany. I mean, you don't get eighteen to twenty-five people of that kind of disparate academic connections, including scientists and humanities people, together to discuss that often in life. So um, yeah, it's one of those places you always, you know, you always wonder, will I ever be able to go back? Or should it just be the one off and everyone should potentially have the opportunity and you should not try to seize the opportunity from somebody else who hasn't yet got the chance. But I have recommended it to To all my colleagues in all fields, you have to know what you want to get done when you go. You have to really go for writing and thinking. And if it's used for that, then I think it's a wonderful opportunity.
1: Did your project evolve in any way while you were here? Was it influenced by talking to people here or by impressions you got?
0: Challenging myself as I wrote over time, thinking and being dissatisfied with what I was producing in terms of that I was going to do the construction of justice really led to the other idea of what I was looking at was the question of why are these two countries, Japan and China, so enmeshed in feeling dissatisfied with the war crimes tribunals, this creation of the idea of injustice. If I hadn't spent morning and then evenings toiling and thinking about it and spreading I have pictures that I shared at one point with my SCAS uh, colleagues. I spread my outline on the floor and I have kind of chapters and piles and whatnot. And I think if I, I hadn't had the wonderful villa apartment where I could liberally spread my chapters on the floor and visualize what I was trying to say and why it wasn't working and kind of attack that day after day, I wouldn't have arrived uh, where I am. It really gives you the time and space the, the physical time and space, but also the mental time and space. Once you have it, you realize you need it. But when you're teaching and you have administration and all sorts of other tasks, it's sometimes hard to, to get that as well. So that's also one of the other kind of treasurable moments, I think.
1: Thank you very much for joining me and the listeners, of course, on SCUS Talks. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You've heard Barak Kushner, professor of East Asian History at the University of Cambridge and fellow at SCAS during 2019-2020, talk about his research on Japanese war crimes. He also gave us a taste of his research on the history of the popular noodle dish, ramen. This was the second episode in our theme Asia, citizen and state relations. In the previous episode within this theme, we have heard the thoughts of Michael Pewitt, professor of Chinese History and Anthropology at Harvard University, on how to rethink the world considering Chinese history. This was episode number 24. As you have heard from Barack Kushner in this episode, the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS features the research of fellows from many different disciplines. This is also reflected in this podcast. Our topics so far have been the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life and outer space, life sciences, infrastructures and Asia, citizen and state relations. We are sure that there is something of interest for everybody, and why not dive into a completely new topic? This is what I do as the host of SCUS Talks, and I can assure you that it is a very good way to discover something new. Do you like Scus Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. Skuss Talks is available on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. My name is Nathalie von der and I would like to thank Barak Kushner once again for joining Scus Talks. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. Bye for now.